Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, the Other People Podcast is offered freely. This is a free show. Everything's offered freely. More than 600 episodes, all available to you for free. If you would like to support the show this holiday season, your support makes a difference. You can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. You can also rate and review the other people podcast over at iTunes. That's an easy thing to do. It takes a couple of minutes and it really helps. Okay. Thank you. Happy holidays. How you doing? Welcome to the Other People Podcast. It's good to be with you. And uh, I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles, and I have Tim O'Brien on the program. He has a new memoir out called Dad's Maybe Book, available from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Tim O'Brien, as you will likely know, is uh, one of our finest writers. He's the author of the classic story collection, The Things They Carried, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Critics Circle Award. And he won the National Book Award for Fiction in 1979 for his novel, Going After Cacciato. So it is a thrill to have him on the program. And I really enjoyed my time with him. Um, what else can I tell you? My mother-in-law just passed away, and I feel like acknowledging her here on the program. She listened to this show somewhat regularly without saying much. <laughs> like Occasionally, she would mention to me that she was listening, but never often. I don't know what that means, but she did listen, and uh, she was a character. It's impossible for me to verbalize my mother-in-law. I think I've mentioned on this program before her uh, hoarding tendencies. She saved everything, especially when it related to her children. Like she still had, you know, like re old, like retainers. Smurf toys, like, you know, everything, all of the artifacts of childhood for her kids. And so when I would go back to uh, Minnesota with my wife and see them, she would always dredge up something, and my wife would just be horrified. 
But she adored her kids, adored her family, adored her grandkids. She had been in uh, decline for a long time, health-wise. And uh, she passed away on December 7th. So, uh, I don't know. I don't know what to say other than um, we'll miss her. I'm just going to let there be a long, mournful silence. (laughs) I don't know how to handle any of this, you know? Does anybody really know? You just sort of go, oh my God. Okay, there she went. This is what happens. I had my kids uh, by myself. My wife was uh, fortunately able to be with her mom when she uh, passed away. And uh, I was here at home with the children. And, you know, I had to tell my daughter you know, grandma passed away and she's like, well, what does that mean? And I, you know, I don't, I was like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know exactly what that means. Did she go to heaven? Well, depends what you mean by that. I don't know. I don't think there's any clear evidence one way or the other. It's difficult to say, you know, all this kind of like fumbling And then I was like, uh, I think I said something like, well, you know, and honey, this is something that we all do. Then she really started crying. She was like, that's scary. So you're trying to like be honest. That's exactly, I mean, that's my approach anyway. I want to be honest. I don't want to fuck it up. I don't want to, because I'm emotionally uncomfortable, fall into some sort of uh, bullshit that's what I don't want to do. And, you know, to each their own. Maybe there are parents who have a different approach to this. I just want to try to be honest, as honest as I can be, including saying, I have no fucking clue. Maybe, you know, not like that, but you know what I mean? Like just saying, I don't know when I do not know. I don't want to pretend to know something I don't know. Nobody knows. It's a great mystery that we exist in as far as I'm concerned. I think it's going to be okay. I think I said something like that too. I was like, the good news is once it's over with, you're free and clear. I think, (laughs) though I'm not sure. Does anybody know anything? You know, it's a big confusion. It's a big mystery. That's just, uh, unless somebody's got information that I don't have, I've never been offered uh, evidence or have never been presented a case that I found compelling insofar as uh, clarity on the afterlife is concerned. Who knows, man? I have found myself telling my daughter before that there's no such thing as death. You know, it's an illusion. You can't turn something into nothing. It's the first law of thermodynamics. You can't turn someone into nothing. You can't turn nothing into someone. It's a continuum. Life is a cycle. It's the circle of life. So anyway, bon voyage, uh, Karen Kay. We love you. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond 
has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. And uh, let's get to my conversation with Tim O'Brien, whose new memoir, Dad's Maybe Book, is uh, really beautiful and touching. It's a book that he wrote for his two sons who came to him later in life. He had children later in life, and he wrote this book as a way of communicating with them um, and, and letting them know about himself in the event that he would not be around as they get older, um, just due to, you know, age and actuarial stuff. So, um, I just really enjoyed it and was moved by it. And it's a beautiful thing to leave for your kids to say the least. And he was just a real pleasure to talk with. He's a mensch and a great guy. So I guess a mensch is a great guy. I think I just, you know what I mean? So let's get to Tim O'Brien. Here he is, folks. His new book, One More Time, is called Dad's Maybe Book. Because I'm, I was 58 years old, and it struck me that when my first child began to know me, he'd know an old man, which is how it panned out. And he may not get to know me at all. Life is fragile. So I decided to, now and then, every year, every two years, just jot down page, maybe two pages of of speech to my boy I may never know and who may never know me. I'd write about incidents with him, but I'd also write about my own dad and I'd write about Vietnam, about my struggles as a writer, just so he'd know something of what his father cared about but mostly just to hear the sound of his father's voice coming through the pages of a book. And it didn't, it wasn't a book really until my older, uh, my younger son, Tad, when he was seven years old and saw the stack of pages and said, is that a book? And I said, no. And he said, well, what if you write more? Will it become a book? And I said, maybe. And very sternly he said, well, you have to, be honest and call it what it is, a maybe book. And I discarded the idea, kind of chuckled at it, but didn't take it seriously. But when he went to bed that night, it occurred to me that so much of my life has been organized around maybeness. Vietnam, every step was maybe. Maybe I'll have another step, maybe not. My area of operations in Vietnam was heavily mined. Most of our casualties came from landmines. And just walking was terrifying. And then that carried over, almost infected the rest of my life, where everything that came out of my mouth, I could almost immediately find an exception to it or qualify it or amend it. And I had learned to really despise uh, absolutism. That's part of where the maybe-ness began to tantalize me. That It's not a sin to say, I think, or in my opinion... Or maybe. 
And now, in old age, every hour, I feel like I'm back in Vietnam again in a way that you can feel the pressure of finality coming on. And that spurred me to kind of adopt the title of maybeness, but also to begin actually contemplating a real book. Well, and it's interesting that you say this, uh, that you're having this experience now uh, where, you know, just to be real about it, like actuarially speaking, um, you know, we don't live forever and you're up in age and you're recognizing that in this book. But you also had the very unique experience of being extremely uh, close to death or confronted in a way with your own mortality that most of us don't experience early in your life in Vietnam. And so I guess a question would be, uh, do you sense a, a distinct difference between your confrontation with mortality in your youth and your confrontation with mortality now? Like, what are the differences? The biggest difference is now it's pretty much absolute. Back in Vietnam, it was you're young, you're 19, 20, 21 years old. And although you're terrified of maybe the next instant will be the end, in your mind there's the expectation that maybe I'll get lucky. But you don't get lucky in old age that uh, eventually, you know, happens to everyone finality comes down and uh it's what revs up for me at least the, the squeeze of and the urgency of wanting to articulate some of the things that i haven't articulated in my other books i haven't ever written about my pacifist inclinations that grew out of vietnam i'm not an absolute pacifist but I I don't think violence accomplishes much in this world and uh, can have terrible consequences. It can kill the innocent while you're pursuing your absolute beliefs that may be changed two years later. Once there were weapons of mass destruction, they were absolute slam dunk. And we found out otherwise. And a bunch of people died. So the, the squeeze now feels more urgent than it did uh, you know, 50 years ago in Vietnam. It's not a morbid thought, though, because it does increase for me, um, it increases the desire to squeeze into time all the love I feel, not just for my kids, but for the world I live in and for what I've done with my career for all my life, how much I've loved trying to make good books. And uh, it, in a way, it's a beautiful feeling to have spent the last uh, 17 years concentrating on what wars are supposed to be for. They're supposed to make peace and harmony and concord and civility and decency. Uh, and I wanted to write about the opposite of what I'd been writing about for most of my career, about love and civility and being nice to people yeah yeah well i mean it's a very sweet book and i recognize uh the sentiment of wanting to leave something behind so that your kids actually know who you are uh, i sort of feel that way about this show just hours and hours of tape of me in conversation when i still have a few of my marbles you know and uh i, I guess even though the, the day-to-day interaction, you, obviously you get to know your kids, especially if you really invest yourself in raising mm -hmm. 
but th there's always just that unknowability of another human being. And we see, you know, I feel it with my own parents. Like, how well do I really know them? So that's one of the main things I've learned about being a dad. I can tell an anecdote where I learned the most astonishing thing about my older boy, Timmy. He, he was at the time nine, I think, and my younger son was seven. We were vacationing in southern France and uh, at a way too expensive resort, way out of sight. It was just filled with people who looked like George Hamilton and bejeweled and rich. And, and my wife. Where, where and I, was it? It was Cap Ferras in the south of France, sort of near Nice in that area. Very exclusive. We didn't know how expensive it was, but boy, that. The pizza slice would be like, you know, 30 bucks a slice and it tastes like <laughs> duck liver. And I remember $40 for a glass of Coca-Cola. I mean, just ridiculous. And we were all out of place. Everybody looked rich and I looked like a guy in a sweater and a baseball cap. We just didn't belong there. And one day we were outside, my wife and I having a drink, and kind of complaining about the cost of the, the, what we were drinking. And um, I got a phone call, and it was my sister calling from San Antonio to say that my mom had died. And I remember feeling so Midwestern in France and meant my sort of Minnesota roots. So out of place, I felt, and so far removed from the mother I'd grown up with in a little turkey town in Minnesota. And I got up, and I went over to my boys who were playing ping pong out on the lawn. And I told them my mom had died, and they didn't say much, and I didn't say much. And I can recall for a couple of hours that ping-pong ball just going back and forth and back and forth, much like what was happening in my head. I have memories of my mom as a young woman and then as a, in a retirement home and in a swimsuit or in the Navy and things like that. And afterward, as dusk came in, we went to dinner. We had to, We left the this ritzy resort we walked down a long sloping hill uh to a town where we could eat more cheaply and i can recall the purple twilight kind of it's just so beautiful in the silky air and i reached out and took timmy's hand and said are you are you thinking about grandma And he said, no, I'm thinking about you thinking about Grandma. And it's, it's an example of what you and I were just talking about, how I didn't know my own son. I thought he was in his little boy world and caring about basketball and Rubik's Cubes and whatever kids care about. Right. But without that... That empathy I didn't know was inside him. I thought it might come in later years, but it was already there. And how he articulated the empathy through a really terrific sentence, it's a simple sentence, but I'm thinking about you thinking about Grandma. It's got rhythm and those two thinkings. It's really, yeah. I didn't have to write it. Right. <laughs> right. It's gold. It was delivered to me. <laughs> right. But it, 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 it's an example of how, we, in a way, we're all strangers from one another. We're all locked inside these heads of ours. I can't read your mind and my kid's mind, nor can you read mine. Uh, and it, it echoes kind of how I felt through my whole life, 
through the army and through my middle-aged years and now into old age that I feel slightly estranged from everything around me because I, I'm always wondering what, 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 do I, what do I believe about the world and about people and ultimately what do I believe about myself? I mean, what do I really believe about myself? And the answer is not a lot. I guess why I do what I do and why I write what I write and why this book came from, it's, it's guessing. I don't have a lot of, I was thinking about this just the other day myself. I don't know if I have very many beliefs. And I think I'm glad about that. I am. I think beliefs are, you know, anytime I've ever felt a strong sense of conviction, especially when I've expressed it with emotion mm -hmm. in a, in a fast way, you know, without mm -hmm. really digging in and considering, yeah. I always come to regret it. Me you know, too. maybe not massively, but in some, it might, could be something small and I'll be like, eh, yeah, that wasn't me at my best. Yeah. That's how I feel. You express something only because you feel like you have to make, offer an ex statement of conviction about something, but oftentimes it's hasty and it is regretted. You can be saying, oh, did you ever play sports? You say, yeah, I played high school football. And you instantly realize it wasn't high school. It was junior high football. And you lie awake at two and why did I say that? Why did, I, why did it come out of my mouth? Yeah. I think it's a pretty common common phenomenon. Well, we have these stories we make up uh, that we we might not even share. It's almost like, uh, you know, we, we construct ourselves from these memories that may or may not even be accurate. Mm -hmm. uh, I sometimes catch myself, uh, you know, talking about who I am through the prism of memory. And I'll be like, well, after the fact, I'll be like, I don't even know if that's true. Just yeah. like what you're saying, you right. know, like it is like, why do I guess maybe we need a shorthand or we need some way to build ourselves. that makes sense. But it, I think it would be nice to be accurate. It is. I mean, it would be nice, but it, that's was one of the huge difficulties. I'm a fiction writer at most of my career. This is a work of nonfiction and it required certain fidelity to what happened which I thought would be fairly easy, but was really hard. For me, most of my memories have, are no, no longer memories. They're, they've vanished for me. Vietnam, which was so traumatic and powerful in my life, so frightening, so morally uh, painful, is almost entirely gone. There are a few indelible moments that remain. I mean, it's like watching a little video on YouTube for... 20 seconds, maybe less, really, five really, seconds. Really? What preceded it and what followed it is gone from memory. And it's true of a great deal of my life. It's actually true of yesterday. I mean, who among us could really recount every word that came out of our mouths yesterday and what we heard on television and how we got from the Safeway to home? You know, you, you lose it as you go. But we do live with, a, with this illusion, as you just said, that we know ourselves. But I'm not sure we entirely do. It's hard to be faithful to yourself if you've forgotten most of your life. <laughs> and uh, I had the same experience with my father. So there's a little episode in the book where I write about sitting with him on a porch at a retirement home when he was 91 or so and didn't have much time left. And we were sneaking cigarettes out on the porch and I asked him where his medals had gone from World War II. They used to be in the bureau drawer under his socks, and they'd vanished. And he said, medals? Was I in a war? 
And I said, yeah, you were in Iwo Jima and Okinawa. And, and uh, he shook his head, and a few seconds went by, more than a few seconds, 50 seconds, almost a minute or so. And he finally said, oh, yeah, yeah, those damn kamikazes, you know. But, you know they sailed a war young, naive, and then you sail home, the oldest man on earth, another great line that, but then he said, you know, um, I, he, he was in and out of senile dementia. He was, not, he was not demented, but he'd have bad moments like that. Then he said, yeah, but that was that war thing. That was Willie O'Brien. Now I'm Bill O'Brien, which meant that in his youth he was called Willie. Now he's called Bill as an adult. And... To him, it was as if there were two different people whose lives he was, and he'd forgotten the life of one, the young Willie O'Brien, and recalled only the life of the Bill O'Brien. And then he said a great thing that gives me some solace now when I'm getting old is that he said, you know, but getting old isn't all that terrible. You don't you don't worry about the future when there isn't any, <laughs> right? Isn't that a great line? Yeah. You know? What a relief. And I said, so those little moments can you can pluck from the real world pretty indelibly and pretty accurately and put in a work of, non, of nonfiction. However, I have forgotten how we got under that porch, what we did afterward. I've forgotten everything else about that entire day except a few words come out of my dad's mouth. And how how soon after that experience did you write it down? Because it feels like if you jot things down when it's still fresh, you can mm-hmm. you can capture it. But if I let things mm-hmm. go, like I was I was reading not too long ago, somebody talking about memory and how there are certain things you don't forget, like the birth of your children or um, you know the first kiss and all these different things. And I started to actually think back, and there are certain memories of the birth of my children. I have certain pictures in my head, but I don't have like a super perfect memory of even that. <laughs> I don't either. I don't either. I'm I so have... panicked. I was probably just like standing there, like trying to pretend like I had my shit together. Same yeah. with me. I, I can remember. I, I think I can remember, although I'm not even certain about this. You know, the, the both children coming out of the womb, but I really don't remember. I have a kind of vague, fuzzy feel. Something happened that was important. The only indelible memory, really, is one of my sons, the second boy, Tad, was born with a very stubby little um, small toe in his left foot. And I was taken into a room, and I remember looking at the foot, thinking, oh, God, is he, you know, it was inconsequential. I mean, nothing, just had a little toe. Right. But I wonder what the consequences, but I can see that toe. But aside from that, this, this, this vaunted, we'll all remember the birth of our children thing, doesn't, doesn't apply to me, and nor does it apply to my wife, really. Right. She doesn't remember much of it either. <laughs> Try to block it out. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it's what, the, what's germane to our conversation on this, to me, is writing nonfiction is a hard thing to do if you're going to not be deceitful. You can pretend you remember, and but to actually be faithful to reality is really very difficult to do, which explains why I'm at the book as written as it is, short chapters, and usually without an introduction to it, because there isn't any in my memory, and usually with nothing following an incident. Well, but I like that about it, because it reflects the way that I think most people's minds work and their memories work. You I know, do, too. I find myself 
Uh, I mean, listen, if it's executed well and somebody writes a memoir that feels very linear and full mm -hmm. and it feels like a, feels like a novelistic mm -hmm. telling, it can be a joy to read. Mm -hmm. But man, that is at odds with the way that I experience my, my thinking mind. It feels my, artificial to me, too. I don't really trust linearity. At least it's hard for me to... When I remember things, I, I'll d dart around in time. I'll go back to you know playing baseball with my dad, and then I'll go forward to you know, fifty years later, him lying dead, and then I'll go back to middle age when he was a terrible alcoholic, and house was full of tension and and bitter, bitter late night arguments with my mother, and how he was institutionalized twice, and uh, didn't have a dad to play baseball with I jump around in time that way and my memory is certainly not linear and to recount something in a way that you don't actually remember it feels to me duplicitous a little bit and I'd prefer to write a book that that does what my memory does jumping from spot to spot and time to time hoping that what coheres what holds things together is a is the is the theme of of uh, lived life that readers are smart they can sort out the ages of characters and win things they can put them along the chain and uh, but to deliver as best I can the way life has come at me the book skips around in content too not just in time but it'll jump from an essay about the importance of trying to teach the work of Hemingway to my sons as a way of teaching my sons about me and my struggles. I chose Hemingway because his diction and his vocabulary are accessible to 14- and 15-year-olds, the only real reason I chose him. And I chose him also because my dad had once given me five of Hemingway's stories. But then it'll jump from kind of writing lessons to talking about being careful about killing people. I'm careful of absolute, and then it'll jump to a tiny incident in in my life which reflects so so important to me. One evening, my son and I, Tad, were watching a NBA game on basketball. He was maybe eight years old, and in the middle of the game, it was it was a, a late it was a Lakers Celtics game. I'm a Celtics fan, and I was into it. He was into it. But in the middle of this tight, exciting game, he said, Hey, Dad, that guy in the Bible, Methuselah, how old was he? <laughs> I was startled by the question. I said, well, I don't know, maybe a thousand years old. Tad said, Wow. And then maybe half an hour goes by, and I thought we were all engrossed in the game again. And Tad said, What exactly did he eat? And the question made me laugh. But 20 minutes, 30 minutes later, after he went to bed, it, I, I think I know where that question came from. He realized how old I am. He knew I had gray hair and hearing aids and my actual age. Uh, he knew that I was at least a full generation older than the parents of any of his friends. And I think he was, I don't think so, I'm almost 100% certain because I later asked him, did that come out of your old man father? And he said, yeah. And I said, why did, why did you say, what exactly did he eat? 
And he said, well, if Methuselah lived to be a thousand years old, I thought maybe he was eating stuff you should eat. <laughs> it's like, Dad, you, you need to go vegan. Come on, man. <laughs> what do you do with that? I'm not going to try to analyze the story. Sometimes stories just are themselves, and if you try to explain them or analyze them, yeah, you're doing a disservice to your own story. Well, and I think when you're working in a nonfiction vein and you're trying to have real fidelity to things as they were, um, you know, little moments like that. And it all, you know, kids are great that way. Like you'll get these kind of perfectly formed exanges or scenes mm -hmm. or, you know, I can think of, I can think of a handful that stick with me uh, with sure. my own kids, you know, and you just go, God, that's gold. And they're not even trying, you yeah, know, they're not even trying. So what about, uh, growing up in Minnesota? You know, you've alluded to it a little bit, but mm -hmm. you, you grew up in a, you, you called it a turkey town. Yeah, it, was, it calls itself a turkey. It calls itself turkey capital of the world. Where they got that information, I have no idea. I think they <laughs> largely invented it. Um, yeah, it was a small town of 9,000, southern Minnesota, near the Iowa-South Dakota border. Flat soybean corn country, some turkeys out on the farms. And it was a place that, as a little boy, I both loved and, and feared. I loved it for safety and baseball and uh, a kind of serenity of the town itself, a sleepiness. I feared it because of my dad, his alcoholism. He had grown up in Brooklyn, New York, and after the war, World War II, he'd moved with my mom to this little prairie town in the middle of nowhere. Why? What brought them my from My mom Bro was from Minnesota, oh, and okay. was from southern Minnesota, and I think he was being nice to my mom. We'll go where you want to go. But he felt totally out of place there. He had dreams of being a writer himself that never came true. He ended up peddling life insurance out in farms all around the town. Something he despised doing. He didn't like selling, period, but certainly didn't like going down lonely farm lanes, you know, selling life insurance to people who didn't want it. And he began drinking and drinking and he drinking. And by the time I was 10 years old or so, he was at the bottom. He couldn't go down. He's a town drunk. And I uh, did go into two institutions, and in the town itself, I felt uh, I felt evaluated, and uh, by the people around me, it was kind of a standard Lutheran, Scandinavian place of rectitude, where drinking was terrible and it was a moral sin. I felt a, re a rebuke all around me. Part of it may be imagined, but part of it very real. And uh, f feared the place and came to hate the place by the time I graduated from high school for its insularity, of its, its, uh, its absolutism about you know, how one should behave in the world. I didn't like it anymore. And so I have a, this love-hate thing that I'm a product of that town in some ways. And, and uh, but I... I so I revisited it. The place has changed completely since then. And what, what's it called? What's it called? Worthington. Worthington. Worthington, Minnesota. 
It was just the uh, subject of a Washington Post major article about this little town where it's completely changed since my growing up there, where when I lived there, it was 100% white. I say 100%, there was one Japanese family, and that was it. Now, more than 50% of the schools are filled with brown and black faces, which is remarkable. In all of America, there's only another town in Oklahoma that's more diverse than this place. There's a big meatpacking plant in the town that attracts people from Laos and the Philippines, Latin America, and Africa. Relatives come, and they bring other relatives. And now whites are in the minority in a place where before they were the only people who lived there. So there's great resentment in the town. Um... When I revisited it, I talked to you know old friends who just thought our, our place has gone to hell. I thought it was great for the town to sort of <laughs> join the 20th century in the real world we're all living in. And as much as there's acrimony in the town, and will be for a while longer, just as there is in America as a whole about immigration... I'm an immigrant. You're an immigrant. For some, some way, we were, you know, our ancestors, you know, for the most part, weren't American Indians, and even they were immigrants, right? Wherever they came from. So I think it's good for the place, but I do have a love-hate uh, relationship with it. The town is aged as I have. The face of the towns are, you know, it's brown now, and mine's changed. I'm not a young guy anymore. And what happened to the town has happened to me. And it was fun to to revisit my youth. When were you last there? Oh, gosh, it was seven years ago, five years ago. I'm not good at time anymore. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but something on the order of five years, I think. And it's, it's, it, uh, it was spooky in a way. When you're standing in front of a house you grew up in and you're don't want to knock on the door because somebody else is living in that house now. And so you, I parked outside and looked at it, and it was as if, as if ghosts were all around me. Like on that lawn, there was my dad throwing a softball to me. I remember it was a softball because it was big. And memory is like one second long, but it's there. It's, it's a second. And a memory of a Christmas Eve inside the house, and my dad drunk, and Christmas Eve not being like Christmas Eve, more like being in the middle of a, a television horror show, like The Walking Dead or something. It was terrible. And then a soft and good memory. When my dad sober, he was a great man. He was funny and intelligent, well-read. He was just a really nice guy. And those memories would come, too. All that while parked in front of a house. And it taught me a lesson about writing and about myself, um, which is how in my own uh, memory things can coexist. Pain with great happiness and laughter can coexist with sadness in my memories. And I tend, maybe like most of us, to come to a conclusion, like it's all sad or it's all fun and happy. 
when most of what life has delivered to me has been a blend of of uh, all kinds of things. Yeah, and I mean, and constantly changing. Constantly, you know, it's good one moment, it's terrible the next. It's good one moment, you know. Just mm-hmm. that's my experience anyway. And I, I'm hopefully getting to a place where I'm like, okay, so this is how it is now. It'll change, you know. It's always going to change some way or another. I mean, yeah. Um, but you talk about your dad's problem with alcohol and how this is obviously a defining experience of your life. Um, and a lot of it seems to have been born of the fact that he felt out of place, not only geographically but also occupationally. Right. But he, you also talked about his military experience. Did he have a difficult service? Did he? You said he would. Well, it was very dangerous. He was on a destroyer at even Iwo Jima, Okinawa, and you know what happened to destroyers during those two campaigns? They were sunk left and right, not all by kamikazes, but most. Uh, it was really dangerous. I'm sure he was scared out of his mind. But he never talked about it that way. He talked about it in a kind of a Gene Kelly, Frank Sinatra, on the town, cheery, chipper, the f- clever, funny stuff would come out of his mouth when he told stories. He avoided, as a lot of veterans do, he avoided the nastiness and um, of memory. Maybe as a way of himself dealing with it, but I think more likely he didn't want to infect me and the people around him with these bad memories. And so he kept it light. He actually wrote a few pieces for the called the Navy Sea Bag in Norfolk, Virginia. Little short, I don't know, twelve inch pieces that were the, the Gene Kelly. I mean, it was just a sort of chipper, and we kind of a little joke around it uh, at the, to conclude a piece. Fun to read, very well written. He did feel out of place in the town. And I think that. Uh, goes for sure whether it caused his alcoholism who knows there are probably myriad causes behind it and some of them unknown to me and it probably is a little facile to say well it was just that he was out of place in the town i think it was deeper than that i think it was dreams that didn't come true and he knew would not a dream of being a writer the dream of a kind of an idealized Brooklyn that he'd return to, of Coney Island and happiness and fitting in. Uh, I would, I think that's more likely what happened. And then there's the simple chemical issue that alcohol can is alcohol and it can do things that are addictive and and. Uh, it's now thought of as a disease, whereas back when I was a kid, it was thought of as a great moral failure on the part of my father. That's where the rebuke stuff came in. Not, it's not thought of as it is today. Yeah, it was like a weakness. Yeah, yeah, moral weakness. Mm-hmm. I see it as an allergy. <laughs> yeah. like some people are just allergic to it. It could be. You know, that's, what it, that's how it always strikes me. They have yeah. a reaction to it, you yeah. know, and it's, yeah. a, it's not great. It certainly hits different people differently, doesn't it? Yeah. 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 I mean, uh, I have a friend who struggled with alcohol. She would have like, she would have one drink. Okay. Two drinks. And she would just go blank. Like her face would just go mm-hmm. blank. It was the oddest thing. You know, and I was like, something yeah. is happening differently inside of her than happens in most people. In most people. Yeah. Um, so let's, I want to talk, ask you about your relationship to Worthington as it pertains to your service in Vietnam. 
because I didn't realize uh, in reading, um, you know, your book and reading about you uh, getting ready for the interview, I didn't realize the way the draft worked. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that the town picked. Most people don't realize that. I had no idea. Yeah, we had this uh, mythology that the lottery was always present. It was just statistical. Your number came up, your birthday, and that's how you were chosen. But that was instituted uh, a year and a half or so after I was drafted. I was drafted by my hometown, Worthington. There was a thing called a draft board. They were all across America. Hometowns... uh, uh, brought in maybe six, seven, eight citizens who would sit on the draft board, usually prominent bankers, owners of department stores, kind of the, the town's uh, upper hierarchy or upper echelon in the hierarchy, and they'd make the decisions. You know, there's that kid, and I know his dad, and uh, I know his mom, and he's a good kid. Let's not draft him. And um, why I was selected, I really don't know. But it was done. I took it personally because it was personal. They chose my name. They didn't choose choose the name of my best friends, any of them. And uh, to this day, I resent it because why not choose their own damn sons? Or why not go themselves and choose themselves? Some of them were young enough. Uh, And then... To have this power of choice as to who is going to live and die, or maybe live and maybe die, and have to kill, yeah, and have to kill people on top of it, and carry that burden for the rest of your life. That's try that one sometime, and and they they knew they they the whole town was like a know nothing town. They couldn't they couldn't have found Vietnam on a map. If you know those blank maps that they give in like third grade, right. they couldn't show that. The history of the place, for what's French nationalism or, or colonialism, what's nationalism, who's, who's Bao Dai, uh, it, it, it wouldn't be able to answer a simple like sixth grade multiple choice question about the history of the place or American involvement in the war. You, it, so it, 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 it was the level of, of uh, power that wasn't commensurate with the weight of the decision and that's what it's going to do to human lives. The lottery, at least, as much as we can laugh at it or deride it, at least has a sort of statistical fairness about it. You know, it's not, you know whoever the number falls on, you've got problems. Not that there weren't ways out of the problems. There were. You could get you know deferments for bone spurs in your feet <laughs> right i'm not naming names <laughs> <laughs> well but i you know it also strikes me as who would who would want the job of sitting on a draft board that I, sounds hellish to me i would not i would not want to be picking people's kids out of a list I to go over there and you know be involved in that horror i would not uh, either i mean if there's got to be I, i've always said like and i guess maybe this would maybe there's an argument to be made that it would affect the ability of our um, nation to govern itself. But if there ever were going to be a war, there could only be a war if the children of age of politicians would be required to serve. Yeah. Wouldn't that help us uh, guard against making irrational it would decisions? It would certainly be a great law, wouldn't it? You can vote for a, you can vote for a war. You're, it's a free country, and you can speak in favor of it. But uh, there's a law that says if you do so... You got to go. 
and so do your so do your children if they're of age or at least you have to urge them to go and we have to have a tape recording of it something on that order the uh, the alternative is you support a war to the extent only that other people will kill and die but not you and that's a that's a strange construction to say yeah i'm all for you know killing people over in vietnam that's but uh, i'm not going to do it nor are my kids and I call that a, a, hypocrisy is not strong enough a word. I'm not sure what the strong enough word for it is. Cowardly, uh, immoral, some word like that. And uh, it, this is not a political issue. I mean, this is this is coming from way back in my history as a foot soldier over there in combat. And it wasn't just Tim O'Brien saying this stuff. It was everybody around me, all these people saying how great this war is. There's light at the end of the tunnel. There wasn't any, I almost said a bad word, you light can't, at the end of the tunnel. You can say whatever you want. <laughs> there wasn't any fucking light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, it was black. And, 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 and they're cheerleading for war from the safety of studios, wearing their bow ties and uh, smiling at cameras and with pan makeup on. And, and, uh, well, if they're so for the war, what, what, why the hell aren't they in the war? And to this day, you can hear my voice gets louder, and I get more, the outrage comes out. But it's not a Democrat-Republican kind of thing. It's a, it's, a, it's a moral, human issue for me that if you're going to speak on behalf of killing people, you, you, you have to go beyond rhetoric and lip service and not just retired in the Packers game on TV that night and forget about what you'd said at the Rotary Club that day. Um, and I talk this way to my kids. It's, they have a tough childhood in some way that the, where other fathers probably tell bedtime stories to their kids, and I do too, kind of cute ones about horny pigeons and farting teachers and that kind of stuff to make them laugh. I also talk this way to them. They'll say something that'll build build me up to the point where I've got to try to uh, let my outrage out and encourage them to to look at the world around them and if it requires it, show some outrage about the world. I'd, I'd love to bequeath them a life of, of outrage because it's a, ultimately it's a life of morality. And... Uh, Without outrage now and then, I'm not sure how moral you can be in this world we live in. There's too much danger and bad stuff in the world. And it, demand, it demands a response. Yeah, it demands some kind of a response. So what about your uh, your boys uh, serving in the military? Well, how have you handled that? <laughs> like the possibility of it? or I can give you a couple of examples. One, one time... Uh, Timmy said to me, I guess he was like 11 or so, he said, uh, so, Dad, uh, uh, are you a pacifist? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, what if somebody broke into our house and tried to kill me? Well, would you, what would you do? And I said, well, I'd try to talk to him first. And he said, yeah, yeah, but what if it's really a mean, nasty terrorist or burglar who's going to kill me? Would you kill him? 
And I went silent for a long time and finally said, yeah, probably, at least I'd try. And Timmy said, what kind of pacifist is that? <laughs> and I said, father kind. It's an example of this absolutism thing that even about something I deeply value, you know, of not killing people, it's a pretty good idea. It has an exception that I'm pretty sure that if somebody tried to kill my children and I was certain that that would be happening without my doing something, I'd strike back. Well, that example, the problem with that example is that it's used oftentimes to justify wars, bad wars. They make, an, they make a comparison between what, you know, Stalin was doing here, and they say, well, that's like killing your children and so on. It can, it can, be, it can be misused in the political world as an example. But on the, on the personal level, I think for me at least, it's pretty true. I do hate violence, but when it's, uh, when it's threatened against my children... I'm probably capable of what uh, other fathers might be capable of striking back and trying to stop it. So when it comes to military service, I try to teach them through stories like that one, like that answer. Um, another example is just this is one of these little YouTube memories in my head, like 10 seconds long. I was complaining to my wife about something that had come out of the TV set. I don't remember what it was, but it was not good. And I said, my, I was saying, God, my books have just failed so miserably that I thought I was a peace writer. And all these wars keep coming at me. And I said, you know, the only, only book that would do the trick is one that shot off your nose when you opened it up and then shot off your ears and shot off your tongue and your lips. And Tad overheard this and he said, oh, I guess you shouldn't hold that book in your lap. <laughs> and the fact that he was listening and he was catching up on the image, like he could see the image of a book opening and gunfire is the only way it made me war isn't so great and so glamorous and so wonderful. He'd been paying attention to what I was saying about the nastiness of war and what, through a book, would somehow try to replicate that so that people would feel how horrible it is and not be quite so blithely sending people off to die and kill. That story, to me, meant more in teaching than any lecture I could have ever given. He was, you know, abstract lecture <laughs> because of the image in it. You know, it, he, he, he imagined that book. Well, and also... You weren't trying to deliver a lecture. You weren't trying to like that's. A, it strikes me that sometimes like we're most effective in communicating with our kids when we're not trying to like harangue them with a, a absolutely. lesson. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> I try to avoid them at all costs. The story is always so much more specific and more powerful, and more memorable than abstraction. Yeah. So uh, you know, you get selected to go off to Vietnam. Um, had like a difficult war experience. You know, you see a lot of things in war. I can only imagine, um, that stay with you for the rest of your life. And you then subsequently wrote, uh, several books that deal with this. Your, your new book, uh, mm -hmm. deals with it too. You sort of can't, 
can't not talk about it. It's part of who you are. It is. Um, can you talk about the the act of writing creatively, be it fiction or nonfiction, and confronting this stuff on the page, and how it has or has not helped you uh, emotionally, helped you um, mentally, you know, get clarity on what war is and what happened to you. I, I imagine mm -hmm. the trauma of war leaves you fractalized. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, we talk about the, the slipperiness of memory. Mm -hmm. You know, you, I can imagine how a person could spend the rest of their life being like, what the hell happened? What was that? Why did we do that? How did that happen? <laughs> yeah. Well, it endures, um, but it's not always present. That for vast swaths of my life, I go about grocery shopping and reading books and um, writing them and not always about Vietnam. I like going to Vegas now and then and camping out at a blackjack table. I like celebrating New Year's Eve with my kids. Um, I like playing golf. I don't do it much, but I like it when I do it. But every three, five, ten days, something will bring back the trauma, just as it would for if you had breast cancer and you were a survivor. Something will deliver it to you back again. And it'll be present for a while. And it, it it's happened often that at a dinner table, something will be said, just as our family's eating dinner. It'll bring it back. And I'll look down at my plate for a long time, and I'll go silent. My kids will notice. My wife will notice. And it's I'm, it's, I'm not... I'm not suffering exactly. I'm remembering something, or more exactly, trying to get a grip on what I remember, and usually failing. That, in, I mean, I was in combat. It wasn't like just being in Vietnam. It was killing people and watching people kill my friends. It was killing, and it was nonstop. It was there. There were no breaks from it. Even when there was a time of quiet, it was scary quiet because you wonder, when is the next terrible thing going to happen? And all these minefields, you're, we're just walking through them constantly, leg after leg, and dead people from landmines, and you can shoot back at them. And that stuff endures to this day when I'm walking. I'll look down at tarmac, or I'll look down on a sidewalk street, a sidewalk, and I'll remember that feeling of where do you put your feet? Where do you put your feet? It's pure luck. You know, you couldn't see these things. So it's little things like sidewalks will make me remember something. And it'll, it'll cause a, a reverie or a silence or an attempt to, in my head, remember more exactly than I can. And then it'll it'll dissipate. It'll go away when some Timmy says, "Play a game of Monopoly with me." Anything that's all it has, and it'll it'll go away. But it doesn't vanish. And this is true more so, I think, for the mothers of dead soldiers and the fathers, how how they can not forever be in pain. I don't. I I just don't know how that. 
once you're dead, you're dead. But to be the mother of a dead soldier and the father of one and the sister, brother, lover, or children of one, that seems to me almost unendurable. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't imagine either of my boys dying, you know. Well, yeah, yeah. Or, any parent, that's the worst horror, you know. It's the worst. And I think of... Uh, the anonymity of the dead, especially the civilian dead in a place like Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they, that's referenced in one of your books, or I picked it's it up. Referenced somewhere. in the new one. Yeah. 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 And I was like, uh, you know, I hadn't given that thought, but to be caught up in the middle of a brutal war, to be mm-hmm. trying to just live your life and raise your family, you're living in a village. Yeah. And then one day the planes fly in or the soldiers come in. Mm-hmm. You die, and no one even knows. Nobody even knows. Yeah. That's it. Your family, the war dead are mourned really only by those who had loved them. You know, intimate love, mothers and fathers and girlfriends and wives and so on. Uh, The mourners, the rest of it falls into just a sort of a casualty count bag. 488 million human beings have died in war in the history of our planet. As an estimate, no one knows for sure, of course, but a pretty good estimate and probably a really conservative estimate. And yet not only do we not know anything about all those 488 million dead people, we can't remember a damn thing about their wars. We don't even know the names of them. The Paraguayan War, the Anlushan Rebellion, Moorish Wars, Wars of Conquest by the Mongols. What they were about, what they were fighting over, right? Who was right? Who was wrong? Was anybody right or wrong? No idea. Just a whole bunch of dead people. And as you used the word anonymity, that's exactly the right word. But not only the dead anonymous, the wars are anonymous. We don't know the things. A single objective fact about all those I just listed. Very few people do. Some historians may, but by and large, we don't. And somehow we tolerate that. And uh, without much sense of outrage or worrying about it. In the case of Vietnam, three million dead Vietnamese. And today, 50 years later, I'll visit high schools. And after I talk, some perplexed student will raise a hand and say, who won a war with three million dead people? They don't know who won the war. And then I'll get another question. What was it about? Like the reasons behind the war, forgotten, containing communism and stopping dominoes from falling and stopping Ho Chi Minh from scampering through the streets of Seattle. You know, all those kind of Justification. I'm not exaggerating. That's a real justification by a political figure and a whole bunch of others. It's totally forgotten or almost erased from memory because we have a new enemy that's been, you know, the terrorists and that. That's our new uh, enemy. And to think of all those dead people, no one can remember what the war was about. And imagine 150 years from now or 200 years from now, that even that's going to recede everything I just said about dominoes. It'll be some little footnote. And only what remains, really, are the dead people and the people who love the dead people. So you can hear the pacifism coming out. It's part of the reason I wrote my new book. 
It's because I'm called a war writer. And what I thought I was doing for all these years of my career, I thought I was doing exactly the reverse. I thought I was writing books to show the nastiness and how terrible war is on an individual human level, how ludicrous it is, and, uh, the absurdities of war through the stories I was trying to tell, the moral weight you have to carry home from a war and suffer for the rest of your life. I thought I was a peace writer. And in this book, I was determined <laughs> I've, I'm going to, people are going to under, are going to have to listen to what was in my heart as I wrote the other books. And it says, I think a lot about the things they carried to have written dad's maybe book um, in all kinds of ways. And some of them explicit ways connecting my other so-called war writing to my, my most fundamental values that I carry around as a human being. And, uh, yeah. Well, I think that, I think that may be just a shorthand for people because the books deal with soldiers in war theaters. Um, but I, I will say in your defense and in defense of quote unquote war literature, that it does to me differentiate itself some from say war cinema, mm. uh, in that you're able to access the inner lives of the characters on the page and the experiences that they're going through and how they're processing them. Uh, one of the more indelible reading experiences I had in my life is reading that book, Jarhead. I don't know if you ever re read that by Anthony Swafford. I haven't, no. But it was made into a film. I know. And one of the things that uh, he talks about is how when he was on base, you know, in basic training or wherever he was stationed, that the soldiers would sit around and watch like Full Metal Jacket and these war films. And it was like to get themselves revved up. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, you talk to the directors of these films and they're always saying, you know, what we're trying to do is show the horrors of war mm -hmm. in an, un, you know, in an unfiltered way so that people yeah. understand the reality. And I think that their intentions are sincere. But I, I guess what I'm getting at is that maybe literature is superior in trying to um, bring the truth home mm -hmm. because of its interiority. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. It's uh, superior to, I think, to film. And film, you're, just, you're, you're not thinking the thoughts of the characters. You're guessing at them through their behaviors and dialogue. But in the book, you actually get words like he thought, and then well, you get the thought. So you do have a kind of deeper access in a, in a, in a book, I think, than in watching a film. The difficulties for me come in... Kind of what you just said. It, it, they come out of a... A writer can control only so much. You tell a story, you try to... You can control what happens in the story and what people say and do. But a reader coming into the story will come into it with religious values, cultural values, political values. They're going to kind of brush up against your story and will take from it Oftentimes, things are completely unexpected. It's happened to me so much in my writing that I'll give a talk at a university or a city auditorium, and I'll start choking up. It's I'm sad, and it's hard to do it. And then somebody comes up to me, usually a young man of like 22 or so, and says, you know, I appreciate your honesty, and I knew that was tough going for you, but thank you for doing it. And then say, you know, I've been thinking about joining the Marine Corps, and now I know I'm going to. 
It's happened a lot of times, 20 times. I mean, over and over it's happened. Sometimes kids are in uniform, ready to go off to Iraq or Afghanistan. And they'll say, thanks for doing that. You know, it makes me want to get, get over there and do my service even more. And I'll go back to my hotel room and I'll look in the mirror and think, what a yo-yo I am, what a <laughs> failure as a writer. But it's the writer's lot that you, you can't control responses to a book and you shouldn't. That, that I think art is meant to invite someone into a moral, moral participation in the events of the story, rooting for or against people, and what would I do, and what's the correct thing to do, which are two different things, what would I do, and what's the right thing to do, and but it's to invite that, but not to control the answers, and in that sense, it's a lot like being a father. You, 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 you can't control, if you did try to control the behaviors and of your own children, what they're going to do in the world, and what they're going to become, um, that that's a kind of tyranny that I don't want to exercise. Me neither. I also don't want to be, I, I've talked about this recently. I don't want to be too hands off. I struggle with that tension. I know. Of like wanting to give my kids space to find them, find their own way and to make up their own minds. But I also don't want to be so hands off that it becomes a case of negligence me too that's exactly the line i'm walking with every single act of my life and i'm sure it gets a little bit more difficult as they get into adolescence and you know then you're like where yeah. when do i intervene what do i say here you know it's i just went through this last night i did a gig here in la uh and got home at 12 o'clock and talked called my wife and got her up at two in the morning and said what happened today and she said, oh, what a nightmare. She said, uh, at the beginning of this trimester, way back in late August, Timmy, who is now a junior in high school, got an assignment in art. To By the time the trimester is over, you have to develop at home and do an art project. And that project was building a mask that was organized around the principle of a nose and the other meaning of the word nose, K-N-O-W-S, those two concepts, a physical nose on the face, and how do we know stuff? How do, you know, he knows he's something. And last night, she said, at around 10 o'clock to me, so dear God, I gotta, I'm supposed to do this all trimester. I haven't even started it. I don't know what to do. And uh, Meredith had to make this, Decision: How much should she help him at ten o'clock for a project due the next day? That's supposed to be elaborate. And at first, she thought, "Well, I could do a lot to help and do that, but that would be doing it for him." And she almost went that way. But then she had this moment you were just talking about. It, you, you, you can't live your kid's life by doing the things they're supposed to do for them. And she had to back off as much as her instinct to her to sort of protect your kid and help him, you know, get this thing in. And then she reached a, what I thought was a sensible compromise, saying, look, I'm going to give you an idea. It's late. I would recommend you take my idea, but if you don't, you better come up with your own. And she said, I'll watch over you and make sure you do it. You know, and that's all I'm going to do. I'll sit here and watch you. And if you need stuff like scotch tape and putty and whatever you might need paint i'll give it to you 
it's a good medium, but those things are, this is last night at midnight, I'm dealing with this, and I'm in L.A., I live like a thousand miles away, and I'm still dealing with, uh, uh, and I did one thing, I sent Timmy a text message saying, I want you for sure to go tell your mom how lucky you are to have her as a mother, and he said, I'm not kidding, you have to do this. Just and I want you to use these words, Mom. How lucky I am to have you for a mother. Well, wake up this morning. He, he texted me back. Up, I told her, "This is at two in the morning now." Right. So I assume well, he told her. No, I wake up today. I asked Meredith, and so I hear Timmy told you that he was you were he was really lucky to have you as a mother. And she said, "No, no, he didn't." <laughs> <laughs> And, and but she's but even she's really unsure that she said he I know he came in there on four o'clock he came in and said something to me but I don't think that's what he told me so they are walking that line between negligence and uh, and uh, over, sort of overbearing behavior it's a constant one but it's not just with children it's with life in general I think it really for me at least it affects what I do politically and. And just the way I live my life, that um, it's, it's walking the balance and making a lot of guesses along the way. Yeah. Like, what do you, I mean, I don't want to get too deep into the weeds on politics, but this seems like such a strange and fraught moment in American history. Mm-hmm. Um, how are you processing all of this as somebody who has, <laughs> you know, served the country and been to, to war and experienced the horrors of that and... Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think you would know as well as anyone that the people in power uh, don't always have the best interests yeah, <laughs> of the citizenry in mind. Like, how do you process Donald Trump and the moment that we're in? Well, I, I come at it from a pretty strong viewpoint. I think the problem is in Trump. The problem is our country elected Trump. We're at fault, not Trump. We knew what Trump was when we elected him. All you had to do was watch him stalking Hillary during the debates, being a bully and peering over his shoulder and flexing his macho muscles. And we elected this guy, despite what we heard on that taped bus conversation, you know, the foul language he was using about women. It's not as if any of this was secret. He was voted for anyway. My disgust is with the country that elected this guy. Granted, he didn't win the popular vote, but he did get elected according to the you know, constitutional methods of the Electoral College. So it's like hating Hitler and, and blaming Hitler for what happened in Nazi Germany or Germans for letting Hitler happen and buying into Lebensraum and buying into uh, let's get the Rhineland back and uh, and buying into anti-Semitism and and buying into it at least to the extent of silence and I think way beyond silence I think acquiescence is a more proper word so it, 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 it's not a, for me a political Republican Democrat thing it's really I feel saddened by my country uh, for for what it did in uh, choosing a man so conspicuously a, vil- a, a, a narcissist and an egotist and a demagogue. 
and it was conspicuous. All you had to do was watch video of that, that and many other episodes prior to his election. That's how I feel about it. This is going to... This is what this is why I decided to write this book because I could say stuff like this and I really it's real I'm not trying to hide behind characters and I'm not I'm, I'm allowed at this point to say some of the things I believe that I that went into my earlier work um, a, a kind of anger things like my hometown drafting me and and the, the arrogance of it and anger at myself for doing something I shouldn't have done. I knew that war was wrong, and I went to it anyway, because I was afraid to say no to my country, and I feared ridicule and censor. So it's not just me being arrogant about the world. I'm, I'm, I'm complicit in what I did, and I've been trying to make up for it for like 50 years now. Well... I uh, am a huge admirer of your work. I love this book. Thank you. It's been great to talk with you. I appreciate you making time during your uh, swing through Los well, Angeles. I appreciate the intelligence of your questions. I don't get it often, so thank you. Okay, guys, that is Tim O'Brien. His new book is called Dad's Maybe Book. Available now from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Great for the holidays. A beautiful book that uh, anybody can relate to any mortal being can relate to just uh, an epic writer and uh, thrilled to have him on the show Tim O'Brien dad's maybe book you can find him online uh, I think he's got an author page on uh, Facebook that his publisher maintains thanks to tiger in my tank for the interstitial music there at the top of the interview if you would like to support this program, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you would like to write to me, if you have something you would like me to know about, you can email me at letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you're thinking. Let me know your latest hot take. Don't forget about the Other People app. This program has its own official app. The Other People with Brad Listy app is available for free wherever you get your apps. Go get the app. It's a good app. So we are approaching winter solstice. The days are short. Daylight is short. You know what I mean. I'm trying not to be low energy. I'm trying not to let it affect me, but it sort of does. You just get a little sluggish, do you not, this time of year? And maybe that's what you're supposed to do. Maybe you're supposed to not resist it and just uh, rest or something. I don't know. So I will be uh, podcasting over the next couple of weeks. I've got some conversations with some book club authors coming up. I've got Peg Alford Purcell. She was a book club author uh, several months ago, and I'm just getting around now to catching up with her. We've, uh, you know, it's been logistical, but I will be talking with her soon. And uh, you can look forward to that. All right. Okay. All right. Okay.
Okay. All right. 